So I'm going to read the um, passage again that Aaron so beautifully articulated for us. But before we get there, I want to just ask you a couple of questions, kind of seminar style, if you like. I don't know whether you've um, read those books or seen those shows that detail the hundred things that made the modern world, or the hundred most important things in history, or the most important events, or the most significant people. Well, I want to just ask you a a quick question. Uh, Let's put the first slide up, please. Now, this is a this is an artifact um, known to many art historians. It's called Guernica, and um, it was one of the great pieces uh, that memorialized and recognized the suffering of the Spanish Civil War. And um, of course, it's uh, a great piece by this guy that's coming up on the next slide. There he is, my old friend Pablo. Pablo Picasso. Who's the more important? The painting or the painter? Hmm, you're thinking. It's a trick question, I'm sure. What's gray and furry lives in trees? I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. I would say that Pablo is the more important of the two, wouldn't you? The artist, after all, can paint many paintings. And although the artifact itself is enormously significant, you couldn't put it above the artist. Well, let's have a look at the next slide. Those of you who are good at um, your German uh, will know that um, this is the frontispiece of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, perhaps the most famous piece of music in the world. Everybody knows the first five notes. One, two, three. Du, 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 du. Yeah, almost got it, but well done, yes. And then there's, of course, this chap, who's a dashing good looks. Of course, the poor chap went deaf towards the end of it, but still continued to write. But which is more important, the Fifth Symphony or Beethoven himself? Let's have a look at this next artifact. The Holy Bible, the proper one. King James Version, that great model of Christian discipleship. The Bible, or, next slide please, the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Hmm. Now you're meddling, preacher. Of course, Pablo Picasso is the creator of Guernica. Beethoven is the composer of the Fifth Symphony. The Holy Spirit is the inspirer, the author 
using human agents, but nevertheless the author of Holy Scripture. Of course, the Holy Spirit, God himself, is more important than any creation, however significant that creation may be. And it's to that end that I want us to consider this passage this morning. Because it's tremendously important as we think through what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and as we think through what it means to connect with that first generation of disciples, it's incredibly important to realize that these women and men were people who were inspired, empowered, and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so often, our experience is not the experience that they had because we have tended towards elevating the artifact above the author and finding ourselves, because of that, strangely disconnected from God the Spirit. So listen carefully today. Because of course, I'm nothing if I'm not a Bible man. But the Bible was inspired and authored by a divine agent. And I would love for us to know him better. So that as he guides us, we'd find ourselves validated by reading the word, authenticated by reading the word, finding revelation that is the explanation of what it is that's going on around us as we immerse ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, This is the beginning of the we passages in the Acts of the Apostles, not the passages that include the Scottish But the we passages, because for the first time in the Acts of the Apostles, it's the first person plural. And so Luke has now joined the team in Troas. And what he's offering are eyewitness accounts rather than reports from other people. And so right here we have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. I'd take them as a team any day. Here they are being shaped and formed by God as an instrument for evangelism and mission into Europe for the first time. And notice that as they travel from the east 
of what is modern-day Turkey to the west, following the great Roman roads across that, that enormous landmass, traveling many, many hundreds of miles by foot, visiting the churches, reading the letter from the leaders in Jerusalem, reiterating the things that Paul had sent in the letter to the Galatians. They are following in the prompting and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now Luke himself is particularly conversant with an understanding of what it means to be guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit because unlike almost any other writer of the Old and New Testament, he gives us an insight and an understanding of what it means to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and be guided by him. He reveals that Jesus is constantly leaning upon the third person of the Trinity in his incarnate self. The Son of God incarnate as a human being is functioning like you or I so that he can be a model for us, so that he can be a picture of what it is for us to follow God. You'll remember that way back in Luke's gospel that we all look together in chapter 4, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. What was that like for Jesus? What did that feel like for Jesus? What was the mechanism of his understanding? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then in, in Luke chapter 5, it says this. One day, as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. It's the only place in the Bible that, that such a statement's made. What was that like? What did it mean? What was it, what was it like for Jesus and the disciples to know that the power of the Holy Spirit was present to heal? What about chapter 6 of Luke's gospel? Chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus has gone up the mountain through the night and has, um, and has been praying to ask the Father who are the key leaders of the discipleship band. He comes down and names them. And then as he walks with them into the vast crowd of people who have gathered from the region, it says this in verse 19, and the people all tried to touch him. Because power was coming from him and healing them all. What did that feel like? What did that look like? Healing them all. And he goes on to say that, that not only are those who are there who are, have physical maladies are healed, but, but those who have spiritual maladies because they're oppressed by demons, they're healed. What did that look like? 
What did that feel like? Well, it must have been something, otherwise Luke would not have reported it for us. Perhaps we should look at another passage in Luke's gospel. It's good to look at the gospel and the Acts together sometimes. Luke 8, 46. Jesus has got off the boat with his disciples. The people are crowding around him. A woman in the crowd, marginalized, alienated, fearful that people will discover that she is ritually unclean and that every person that she touches becomes ritually unclean because of the hemorrhage that has been going on for 12 years in her body decides that the only hope that she has, she spent all her money on doctors and healing remedies. The only hope that she has is to, is to touch the corner of the robe of Jesus. And so perhaps maybe even taking the risk to be on her hands and knees, she makes her way through the crowd, touches the corner of his robe, feels the healing in her body. Jesus stops, says, who touched me? Peter said, Lord, Everybody. Verse 46. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. I know that power has gone out from me. What was that like? What does that mean? Why would Luke record such words for us who are seeking to imitate and emulate the life of Jesus? Why would that be significant? If it's something reserved for the Son of God and not for us, why mention it? And yet Luke does. Well, maybe the Acts of the Apostles can help us. Because, of course, there we see the first disciples engaging and encountering the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, they're in the upper room. A great wind is heard. Flames of fire settle on each of the disciples, all 120 in the room. And it says in verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What did that feel like? What was it like to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time? What was it like to be enabled to speak in other tongues for the first time? What was that like? You see, Luke is recording these things so that we are able to register that the way that he moves in our life is identifiable and not so metaphysical that we can't describe his work or understand his moving. 
What about further on in the Acts of the Apostles? Let's look at, um, let's look at chapter 5. Chapter 3, of course, is where Peter says to the crowd who've just seen him and John heal a man at the beautiful gate who's been crippled his whole life. And he says, it's not our power, it's his power. And then we see the great revival occurring amongst the Jewish people in Jerusalem. As a result, it says in chapter 5, verse 15, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. What did that feel like? Did Peter ask his wife every morning, what's the weather like today? Are we going to have bright sunshine again? Or is it going to be overcast? I mean, just think about it. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Good old Peter is such a great example to us because he's so accessible, isn't he? There he is in chapter 10, seeing the vision of the sheet lowered down from heaven and God saying, kill and eat. And he goes through those gymnastics in his soul until he realizes that God is saying that the Gentiles are to receive the good news. While Peter was still thinking about this vision, chapter 10, verse 19, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The Spirit said to Peter. What did that feel like? He's just a man like you or I. And then we come, of course, to our own passage today. The Holy Spirit kept Paul and his companions from preaching the good news in Asia. Now, it's important that we understand the geography here. They're, they're traveling from east to west. I probably ought to turn that around for you, from east to west. And they're thinking of going south to the region around Ephesus, where one day... In the future, Paul will see such a breakthrough that not only the city will come under the sound of the gospel, but the whole region called the region of Asia will hear the good news and thousands will be ushered into the kingdom. So significant a work that by the time Timothy is sent to oversee the church, the church has risen above the event horizon of the civil authorities and is beginning to cause great concern. For the next 400 years, Ephesus will be the epicenter of Christianity. But Paul is not to go there yet. Wouldn't it be terrible to go there and the, the harvest wasn't ripe and everything is missed and somebody has to go in another... See what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit 
kept him. What did that feel like? So he's thinking, okay, well, we're, we're going from east to west. We can't go south. Maybe we should go to the, the beaches of the Black Sea. Let's go to Bithynia. It's like saying, let's go to Florida. <laughs> and as they're passing Mycia, they say, okay, well, let's go. Sounds great. We get t-shirt, hat, everything. And the spirit of Jesus prevents them. What does that feel like? What you can be certain of as you read the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, as Luke gives this foundational theme of the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is that the presence of the Spirit is unmistakable. The prompting of the Spirit is unmistakable. The power of the Spirit is unmistakable. And the prophecies inspired by the Holy Spirit are clear and unmistakable. Presence, prompting, power, prophecy. And they're not just for these people. Now, these folks didn't have a New Testament because they hadn't written it yet. They didn't have a New Testament. They had the Old Testament to, from which they could sense the prompting, recognize the presence, feel the power, and go and, and search the Scriptures for indications and imitations of other people's lives that would suggest to them that either they were on the right track or the wrong track, but they weren't carrying the Old Testament with them because it'd be great big bagfuls of, roll, of, of scrolls. Books hadn't been invented yet. Nobody had a pocket Bible. You had to commit the Scriptures to memory. But these people traversed the known world with the good news of Jesus, guided by the Holy Spirit. And unless you're prepared to argue with me, and it'll take you the rest of your life, that these people are supposed to be different from us as people, I'm afraid I'm going to have to suggest to you that we need to learn more of what it means to be guided by the Spirit. So how do you do it? How does it work? Well, Paul gives us a clue in one of his letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, he, as part of his testimony, tells us all of the terrible things that's happened to him. And he says, when I ask God to take away 
the insult and the indignity of being pursued by people who were telling everyone that the terrible things that had happened to me were because I was out of God's grace. I was rebelling against the Lord rather than following him. The Lord said, I'm I'm not gonna do it. It may be a thorn in your flesh, but I'm not gonna do it because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. In your weakness. Turn to your neighbor and say, in your weakness. Go ahead. So what did weakness feel? What did weakness feel like for Paul and his companions as they walked from the eastern part of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor in those days, to the western part? What was weakness like? Well, let's just remember some things that have happened to Paul. Undoubtedly, the most significant event just prior to this journey was his separation from Barnabas. So just think about it for a minute. Paul, the young pharisaical zealot, is on his way to Damascus to arrest and carry back in chains the disciples of Jesus. Jesus arrests his headlong pursuit to hell, knocks him from his horse, blinds him, and tells him that he's going to be his instrument to the Gentile world. He recovers from his blindness at the laying on of hands of a man called Ananias who prays for him to be filled with the Spirit. And for three years, he is in the desert and back in Damascus, sharing at the synagogue the things that God is revealing to him as he reflects on the scriptures and on the life of Jesus. And he becomes such a disturbance that during the time of King Aratus, they, they conspire to kill him, but he's lowered in a basket outside the city wall and escapes and goes to Jerusalem seeking others who share his knowledge of Jesus but the followers of Jesus will have nothing to do with him. After all, he's the persecutor, the one who was behind the killing of Stephen, the one who's been behind the arrest and imprisonment and torture of who knows how many followers of Jesus. But a man called Barnabas puts his arm around him and says, okay, friend, I believe you. I'll introduce you to Peter. And for 10 days, Paul stays with Peter at the behest of Barnabas. And then because he's causing a little bit of trouble, they send him via Caesarea back to his home. And then for the next nine to 13 years, we're not sure of the exact length of time. We know that Paul is out there trying to do the work that God had given him to do. But the litany of suffering is almost unbearable to read. When you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, you see this list of things that have happened and almost all of them occurred in the years when Paul went back to Tarsus seeking to share the good news with the people around him. 
beaten with the 39 lashes five times, with the rods shipwrecked in the open ocean for a day, in trouble in the cities, in trouble in the countryside, always feeling threatened for his life. And although it's not included in scripture, the memory of the church tells us that that Paul was hiding for fear of his life in one of the caves in the mountains above Tarsus when Barnabas, who went to Antioch and saw the Gentiles coming to faith, remembered the story of the young man Paul and said, I'm gonna go and find him. And so left Antioch and went to look for Paul. And the story of the church tells us that Paul has become a tissue of scar material. So much so that this young man has become old before his time and he's bent over and his legs have become bandy. Like anyone who's been systematically beaten. He looks up through hooded brows. His body is covered in scars. This young man, barely out of his 30s, looks like he's ready for death. And Barnabas takes him by the hand and says, It's happening. What Jesus said, it's beginning. Let's go. I don't know what reticence Paul would feel. I mean, talk about PTSD. He carries him back down to Antioch and they see this amazing work. All the Gentiles coming to know Jesus. The leaders gather to pray and the Holy Spirit says, you should send Barnabas and Paul to tell other people. So they go on their first missionary journey. Again, Paul is risking his life. They stone him. It appears almost to death. Barnabas is with him every step of the way. And then when Paul has written his letter to the Galatians and has gone to Jerusalem with Barnabas to speak about their ministry to the Gentiles, gaining a letter of acceptance for the Gentiles, Paul wants to go with Barnabas back to those churches that they planted and Barnabas wants to take John Mark who's abandoned them on the previous journey. And they have such a sharp disagreement that they separate. It's easy to read it, isn't it? And forget the wound in Paul's soul. What did he feel like? Did he have regrets about the way that he, that he spoke to Barnabas? Did he wonder whether he'd been too hard on John Mark? Well, he's a normal human being. My guess is, yeah. Was he angry at Barnabas for not listening? Of course. Did he go through bargaining in his mind going, maybe we could get it back together again and I don't know. Did he go through all five stages of grief? Of course. Was there brokenness in his soul? Was there a weakness within him? Did his inner life 
represent a thin place. No longer guarded by his own sense of strength and achievement. But now, vulnerable, frail. That place is the place where the Spirit was able to speak to Paul and say, don't go there. That place was the place where the Spirit of Jesus was able to say, don't go in that direction. Just recently, I've been very conscious of old memories, old wounds re-emerging. I don't know why they came unbidden. I didn't want them, I didn't expect them, certainly didn't welcome them. Feelings of rejection and abandonment. Went back for my days in school when this bright little boy was always at the bottom of the class. Put into separate groups for the ne'er-do-wells because he couldn't read. And it must be something that he should attend to with greater determination. When brothers and sisters who didn't mean anything by it would mockingly ask him to read and he wouldn't be able to. Times when after the Lord had rewired his brain and he could read, left college and went into the ministry and discovered that people weren't always welcoming of the things of God. People within the churches found it threatening that there was success in the hands of just a working class kid from the north of England. I mean, who's that? And when that working class kid grows the largest church in Britain and becomes the focus of envy, spiteful words, And then people in the team, as you move into a more global work and begin to see things happening all around the world and a team develops and you have to take hard leadership decisions about what it is that you sense God is saying as you open your heart to him in those broken places that have carried with you as places of openness and vulnerability to God. And they become places of contention, and strife, difficulty and bitterness. And over the course of a life, 
you are so conscious of your failings and your frailties, of your battles won and lost, of your feelings of abandonment and grief. And it's right there. that I sense the presence of the Spirit. It's right there that I feel his prompting. It's right there that I feel his power. It's right there that the prophecy that God is able to give every person after the day of Pentecost is birthed. You see, I think, as evangelicals, we have protected our vulnerability with our knowledge of the scriptures. I think as evangelicals, we've, we've covered up the frail place where God wants to speak to us directly by the knowledge that has given us strength And although we're able, of course, to be directed by the scriptures, I think that we miss out on the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of God speaking directly to us. To our hearts. Because he does it in the broken place. Not the guarded place, not the strong place, but the weak place, the place where you are most broken, that perhaps you don't want to face, the place where you're most vulnerable, that perhaps you don't want to look at it. But right there, the Spirit is saying, I'm here and I can break through because there's brokenness here that doesn't protect you from me. We've been praying for revival in the prayer meetings over these last few weeks. When revival is sent to an individual or to a group of people, it always is evidenced by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit doing things that until that point had not been evident. That's why revival always begins in brokenness. And so for you this morning, the question is this. Will you come and offer the brokenness, not as something for God to heal, of course he'll heal it, the day is fast approaching when we'll see him on the clouds. And of course, every tear will be wiped away. And all brokenness will be healed. But between now and then, will you allow him to make the brokenness the place of revival? 
the place of frailty, the place of meeting with him. I'm going to ask Chris and the team to come. It's been tremendous to see how people have been so committed to doing business with God these last few weeks. And I just want to make it clear that if you don't want anyone to pray with you, you can come forward, and if you're at this side of the stage, no one's going to come. No one's going to talk to you. No one's going to pray for you. No one's going to interrupt your communion with God. Everywhere else, open season. So if you want someone to pray with you, to prophesy, to be with you in your wrestling, then from, say, here over, that's what you can expect. I wonder whether you want revival. I wonder whether you want to bring that broken place and ask God to meet you there.